Well, hi everyone. Evening. Uh, my name is Mark. If you don't know me, and just to say a massive welcome um, to anybody who's who's new. Really great to have you with us. Um, can you put up your hand if you have so far been to see Avengers: Infinity War? Yeah, yeah. Put your uh, leave, leave your hand up, uh, and now take your hand down if you didn't like it. Yeah. Okay. Oh, oh, oh! Too many hands going down. No, it was great. It was it was great. I want to go and see it again. Um, but as many of you uh, know, one of my favourite pastimes is watching uh, superhero movies. Um, now, part of it is uh, simple escapism, as I'm sure you know. You know, it's good fun. I'm a dreamer. Um, I love the idea of people having superpowers, even if it is very far removed uh, from normal life. Um, but of course. Uh, that's precisely why some people don't like these movies. They say, oh, it's, it's so unreal, um, it's so one-dimensional. But in reply, I say to all you critics, um, the best superhero movies out there are not like that. The best ones are the ones where we see that they're not just unlike us, but they're also like us. For example, it's not just the Incredible Hulk, is it, who turns into an uncontrollable rage monster when they don't get their way. I mean, you know, people are coming to mind already. If, you, if I think about, uh, for example, a few people on the staff, um, a, cer a, cer a certain Australian curate comes to mind, a certain Sarah Spreckley, a certain Rosie Phillips. You, would, you wouldn't know it to look at them, would you? You really wouldn't know. No, I'm only joking about them. Um, I always like to go for the most unlikely people because they are genuinely unlikely. No, what I really mean is, um, is we start to relate to the superheroes when we get a window into their story and their background. And it's then that we start to see, oh, okay, okay, they're superheroes, but they're also like us. They've got a story. Um, we, we see why they are what they are. We see what it is that drives them. Um, so, so one of my favorite ones is X-Men Origins, uh, the Wolverine film. It didn't get great reviews, but it's one of my personal favorites. And one of the reasons there is we see his backstory. Um, we find out he's not just this supercharged meathead with an anger problem. Um, no, he's got a family background and a tragic one. He's experienced love and loss and betrayal. And that's what drives him to endure such extreme pain and become the Wolverine. That's also what drives his quest for revenge, which is a lot about what that film is about. But that question, what ultimately drives us? What ultimately drives us? Is one of the deepest and most important questions there is. I mean, think about the people in your life right now. What is it that drives them? What is the underlying motivation for their major life decisions? and for what they give their best energies to. Um, for some, it's anxiety about the future, whether that's um, shoring up money or relationships or career progression. That's the big, uh, the big concern. That's what drives them. Um, for some, it's self-protection. There are people who, who they've just been so hurt by people in their past that they say, the one, that they say, the one thing I'm never going to do again is let myself be hurt like that. That's the driving force. And for others, it's the need to prove ourselves to show that we're not going to be limited by our background. I'm going to prove to the world that I can be anything I want to be. For others, it's the desire to be accepted, whether by our peer group or our parents or even just ourselves. But for so many people, the driving force in their life boils down to one thing, fear. Fear. Fear that the future is beyond my control. Fear of being hurt. Fear of failure. Fear of mediocrity. Fear of rejection. But these things can end up driving our whole lives, and it does for so many people. But when it comes to Christianity, well, there's a game changer. You see, when we become followers of Christ, we start to be driven by something completely different and something so much better. 
It's there in our verse for the year, which I hope you're uh, starting to memorize uh, because it's so good, it's so rich, where Paul says this. He He says, we live our lives in view of God's mercy, not out of fear, but the driving force of the entire Christian life is God's mercy, that knowledge of God's amazing and surprising love for us. Uh, now, why do I say all of that? Well, today's Bible passage that we're going to look at is a series of 12 commands. That's all it is, 12 bold commands. But the thing is, we would completely miss the point of them if we were to look at them in isolation. No, we need to understand that they are, that they are all and they are only outworkings of the mercy-driven life. Commands that are outworking of the mercy-driven life. Um, so we're actually going to do a composite reading. If, you can, if you've got a red Bible, if you don't, uh, put a hand up and one of the stewards will bring, uh, bring one to you. But it's on page 1128, page 1128, and it's Romans. Uh, we're going to begin at chapter 1 and then dip into chapters 5 and 12. Page 1128 in the red Bibles, Romans chapter 1, and then dipping in to chapters 5 and 12, and the references are also up on the screen there. And as you're going there, let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you love, love us. Thank you that you love every single person here. And thank you that you want us not to live out of fear, but to live out of a knowledge of your love. Father, we pray you would help us to understand your word today. And above all, help us to understand why it is you say what you say. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so Romans chapter 1, verse 7. This is uh, where Paul tells us who he is writing to. And he says, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who he's writing to. Uh, flick on to chapter 5, a few pages. Chapter 5, verse 6. And this is where Paul describes what he means by God's mercy. Chapter 5, verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then flick on to chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy... To offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing and perfect will. And then look down to verse 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly and sisterly love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. This is God's word. Now notice that those 12 very challenging commands are not for everyone. No, they're not for everyone. They're for people who, uh, chapter one, know that they are loved by God. Who know that they are loved by God and know that they're called to be saints. That is, to, uh, called to be people slowly becoming more like Jesus. 
These commands are for people who know a savior who died for them. And not because uh, we were lovable, but while we were still sinners. When that savior knew the full depth of our sin and our pride and our hypocrisy and our self-absorption and our natural rejection of God's rule. And yet he still gave his life for our forgiveness. These commands are for people who know that. These are 12 outworkings of the mercy-driven life. Now, what we're going to do now is a whistle-stop tour through them, and and we're going to dig in straight away. So, verse 9, love must be sincere. Literally, love must be without hypocrisy. Uh, So, one translation says, don't just pretend to love others, really love them. And love, of course, is fundamentally about seeking the other person's good. It's not that, the much narrower definitions that our culture sometimes tries to give it. No, it's seeking the other person's good. Or better, seeking and pursuing God's best for them. That's the highest good, isn't it? God's best. And so sincere love, well, that means not saying we'll do something and then forgetting. How often do Christians say, I'll be praying for you and then forget to pray? I became convicted of that and I found the best solution was to always pray immediately if I say I'm going to pray for someone. Always pray immediately, then I'm much less likely to break my word. It means not just loving people to be seen by others. Important question to ask ourselves is, would I do this if no one was watching? Would I still do this if no one was around? And of course, the answer should be yes. It also means not showing an interest in someone simply because of what we can get out of them. Like getting them into bed or just seeing them as an opportunity to advance our career. Do I become less interested in people when they become less useful to me? And let's check ourselves on that, especially if networking is part of our day-to-day life. Love must be sincere. Next, hate what is evil and cling to what is good. And what we don't see here is that the original language is really, really strong. So our translation, hate what is evil, actually softens it. Um, so, So it's literally hate strongly, abhor what is evil. And then the word cling, is, is, it's the same word used to talk about cleaving in marriage. It's like saying, marry what is good. That's how, how, how close you need to hold to it. Um, and this is why we need to be in the Bible every day. To keep us and uh, to keep our children, if we end up being blessed with them, uh, to keep us anchored in God's definitions of love and the good and the true and the beautiful. Because the culture is always trying to change his definitions. Also, notice it doesn't say hate who is evil. It says hate what is evil. What's the difference? Well, um, parents, I think, especially understand this. Because they know that the more you love your child, the more you hate the liar in that child. The more you hate it when they behave less than who they really are. The more you love someone, the more you do what's in your power to help them to understand and love what is good. Next, verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly and sisterly love. Now, at this point, lots of Christians will think, well, I'd, I'd say I'm pretty good at this one. You know, this is one of the ones I'm pretty strong. Um, there are lots of people um, here this evening that, that I love and care about. And but that's great. Or at least that's a great start. Because this command is much more challenging than just doing that. And why do I say that? Well, who does this apply to? Who is the one another Paul is talking about? Well, he's obviously talking about the whole church, not just the people I like or the people I would naturally spend time with. 
And the rubber hits the road with this question, and I don't like this question, and you're not going to like this question, but it's where the challenge is. And it's this. How devoted am I to the person in this church who I find most difficult? The person I find most difficult, how devoted in brotherly love am I to them? Now, you probably won't have any uh, problem identifying who that is. Hopefully, uh, not too many of you are looking at him right now, um, but you'll probably know who that difficult person is. And also, I would say, if you can't identify that person, if you can't think of someone, well, there's probably a problem. That's actually a problem too. Because chances are, that means you've been keeping everyone at arm's distance. So you've never been developing close enough relationships for people to get to the point of annoying you. And that's what, that's what family is. That's what community is, isn't it? But that difficult person... How committed am I to them? And not just to changing them, but to loving them. Do I pray for their blessing? For me, I know that's the first thing that I need to do when I'm finding someone really difficult or I, I, I would just want to be rid of them. To, to learn to pray, God bless them. Just God bless them. That's the, often the first step to really loving them. And do I look for ways to love them, active ways to love them? Or do I just stop that whenever I feel that they've let me down or they've annoyed me? And do I start pointing the finger and devote myself not to loving them, but to accusing them? And, and processing in my mind all of the things that irritate me about them. And there are so many things uh, that can get in the way here. Unforgiveness. Self-righteous attitudes. Refusing to talk to new people. Now remember, tiredness is not a sin. But tiredness as an excuse not to welcome other people is a sin. It's uh, always sitting in the same place on Sunday with my chosen set of friends. It's home groups that refuse to evolve over time and welcome new people. It's interesting because it, it, it sounds so positive, doesn't it? I like my home group just the way it is. But actually that attitude can be a real barrier to love because it makes us become cliquey. It makes us closed to blessing new people. Now, as I say all of that, I'm sure this calls nearly all of us to repentance in some way. It definitely calls me to repentance. So I just want to take a pause at this moment. Um, can we have uh, the next slide up, please, Anna? And, um, and just have a quick confession moment right now. Just acknowledge before God if there's, if, if there's someone who, who you've been sort of uh, pointing the finger at rather than uh, having a loving disposition towards in this church. Father, we pray, forgive us for being too selective in which of our brothers and sisters we're prepared to love. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen? Yep. Okay, be, so be devoted to one another in love. Let's all grow in this. Next one. Honor one another above yourselves. Honor one another above yourselves. The church is a community of honor. Honoring God, but also honoring each other. And we need to do this regularly. We need to practice it regularly. Um, so the, uh, the Apostle Paul was actually a great example of this. In so many of his letters, you find him praising and honoring other Christians for their faithful love and service. In fact, if you were to flick onto the final chapter of this letter, Romans chapter 16, it's a conspicuous example. You see, you see him praising and honoring about 30 different people in the church in Rome. And by the way, if you've been told that Paul was a misogynist, well, do check out how he talks about his female partners in the gospel um, in that chapter because he's so full of praise for them. Honour one another. 
I love how those videos that we saw earlier were honoring the people who prayed for us over all of those years. One of my favorite exercises to do with small groups is to, is to go around and ask each person to name somebody um, in the church who recently has inspired or encouraged them. It's such an encouraging thing to, thing to do, but it's also a way to honor people as well. Uh, and again, this isn't just about the people we find easy. We're just honoring those who honor us. Um, I, I fell foul of this uh, completely recently. Um, we were up in the Lake District, and we were having a, it was a time of recuperation and, and rest and trying to get away from it all, and we were on a lovely walk, and then halfway along, um, my mobile phone rang. Now, I don't know why I had it on, but it, it rang, and it was a cold caller, and I was just so annoyed, and I just picked it up, I, uh, and, uh, and I, I was just so abrupt. I was so short with them. And, after, and immediately I, I put the phone down. I felt so guilty. And I spent the next hour praying for them. God bless them. God bless that person. God bless that person. Because I know I really didn't. But you know, these are lessons we need to learn. To, to, to love and to honor people, even when it's inconvenient. Even when we're not in the mood for it. Uh, in fact, a, a more literal translation here would be, outdo one another in showing honor. It's about taking the initiative, not waiting for the other person to start. In fact, that can be one of the first steps in repairing a broken relationship is, is to honor the other person, to find and affirm positive things about them rather than all of those other things that are often so present to you. Next, verse 11. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Now, this is about pressing on in worship and in service, even when we don't feel like it even when we're in a time of waiting or transition or fatigue. And it's not about pretending to have energy that we don't have, but it's, it's rather it's offering God what we do have, whether that's a lot or a little. And I want to say this includes our sung worship on Sundays. It's an important thing to remember that this is something we all need to, be, need to consciously and intentionally engage in. So our time when we sing together, it's not just for people who enjoy singing. It's not a time to slip out and catch up on the week. It's not a time to people watch. So, some people sort of do a disco ball thing and seem to spend half their, half their time watching other people and only half of the time actually engaging with the songs. But this is a serious time. It's a time to refocus on God, to honor him, to realign our spirits with his, to declare how things really are over against all the alternative claims that we're constantly being bombarded with day in, day out. And of course, the number one thing is a claim is that God is non-essential. He's optional. He's not necessary to our, our lives and our endeavors. Now, I know we're tired on Sundays, sometimes, maybe always. And I know it's hard to worship sometimes. God knows that, and we're going to come on to that in a moment. But still, it's about choosing to engage whatever mood we're in, whatever season we're in. In fact, all it takes is a bit of self-control. That's it. To say, no, I'm going to engage rather than disengage. To have that discipline, whatever our mood. But also, remember God loves to help us in this as well. He knows. So why not ask someone to pray for you? If you find it hard, maybe for a season, maybe always, to engage in worship, ask someone to pray for you. Get God's help in it. And, and, and if you don't naturally enjoy singing, and I know uh, some people don't, well, why not get some singing lessons? And why not tell the teacher, hey, this is an important part of my life, and I want to enjoy it more. Please, can you help me to do that? 
Now, I've never heard any preacher suggest that before. I know it's a strange suggestion, but, but why not? Why is that such a strange idea if it's such an important part of our lives? Keep up the spiritual fervor. Now, if you can jump on to verse 13. Um, Share with God's people who are in need and practice hospitality. Remember, followers of Christ never think in terms of ownership, but stewardship. Not ownership, but stewardship. It's about how can I use what God has given me to bless others. And this sharing can take all sorts of forms. Um, It can be helping with basic material needs. Um, Cat Flores is doing an excellent job facilitating that through our church's support net. Um, It could be helping someone who needs a holiday to have a holiday. It could be babysitting for parents who need a rest. It could be inviting single people over to hang out with the family. Sometimes single people can be starved of affection. And that is a deep and profound human need. And when it says uh, practice hospitality, well, that's specifically talking about strangers. The word is is philoxenia, uh, literally loving the stranger. Now, this one is always challenging. And again, when we're tired... We want to just, uh, just love those who we know. Uh, but also St. Mark's, and I, uh, one of the things I love about this church is there are so many people who, who really inspired me on this front. I think of uh, the Diwali's and others helping uh, young homeless people through Night Stop. I think of all of those who helped with the winter night shelter. I think of several families who have given our ministry trainees a home for the year. That's costly. And of course, several in this congregation who foster and adopt, which is the ultimate in hospitality. But how powerful and beautiful it is when a church really lives this out. And let's do it more and more. And then finally, verse 12. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. And I saved this verse till last because in, in many ways I think the, others, the other commands kind of flow out of these. And what I mean is that... I believe our ability to do those other nine commands is either fueled or crippled by whether we do these, and specifically by how we respond to times of testing and affliction. So first, be joyful in hope. Christian joy ultimately springs not from the blessings of God in this life, wonderful as they are, but from the blessings to come, from the hope of glory. And Paul says we have a responsibility to fuel our joy by meditating on this hope. But there's immediately a problem with this. And the problem is that many of us find it so difficult to imagine what eternal life is going to be like that we find it hard to get excited. So we end up muddle-headed and confused and having all sorts of misplaced worries. Um, you know, what, what if I can't find my friends? What if eternal life isn't fun? What if there's no football in heaven? What am I going to do? We start to worry, maybe it's not going to be as much fun as I like. Oh, maybe I'm not even looking forward to it at all. But you see, the problem is, it's like 2D people trying to imagine life in three dimensions. That's what it's like. And of course, the Bible does say, yes, it is like looking through a glass darkly. But the Bible also says that we can still know enough to be joyful in hope. We can still know enough to be excited about it. Um, Two books that you might find helpful on this front. Um, uh, One is uh, The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. Now, this has absolutely nothing to do with divorce. It's an imaginative story about a busload of people who go to the foothills of heaven. And the thing he does there brilliantly is to help us to imagine a world that is more real than this one, rather than less real, that's more substantial, 
rather than less substantial than this one. See, our, our mistake is often to think of this life as more real than the life to come. But it's not like that at all. So that's a great book. Um, another one, and a very easy read as well. Um, a slightly harder read, but um, a good study, is Surprised by Hope by Tom Wright. And this explores what the Bible does and doesn't say about the Christian hope. And one of the things he points out very vigorously is that the Christian hope is not going to heaven. That's, that's the primary way that Christians tend to talk about their hope, but it's not how the Bible talks about our hope. And again, there's so much muddle-headedness here. Um, so so the, 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 both of those books might help um, to, to, yeah, to, to start to understand better what the Bible says about hope. But I would say that our, our annual vision calls us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so I think this is a really, really important application of it. We all need to better understand our hope so that we can be more joyful in hope. And especially in those hard times, to be joyful in hope, always. Secondly, patient in affliction. When times are tough, when times are really hard, yes, we pray for God to bring those times to an end. And we pray for healing, and we pray for deliverance. And God invites us to do that. But he also calls us to patiently endure to be patient rather than impatient in affliction, to trust that God even now is doing a deep work in me, to know that God's purposes for, for my life are not on hold while I'm going through a tough time. He's not waiting for the trial to be over to then come back into my life. No, very often he is doing his deepest and most important work in us in those times. It's also patience rather than bitterness. In those times, it's so easy, isn't it, to become bitter, so easy to blame God. In fact, what's even easier than that is to blame other Christians or to blame the church. How often people end up saying, it was my church that let me down. The reason I'm so bitter and angry has nothing to do with me or how I'm processing my circumstances. No, it was all them. They let me down. They failed me. But that's the natural way, the way of bitterness and blame. The supernatural way is patience and trust. Carrying on trusting God, carrying on loving others, even the ones who frustrate us, even in those hard times. And that supernatural way is so much better. But it does need God's means of grace. We've got to have God's spirit to help us in those times. And very often his means of grace as well are, are the scriptures and the songs that especially speak to our pain. Scriptures for the season, songs for the season. And also the stories of others who have suffered like us. So often those are so important. I wonder how many people here know the story of George Matheson. He was born in Glasgow in 1842. He was the eldest of eight children and he excelled at school and university. And he was on his way to becoming a heavyweight theologian. But when he was only 19, he developed an incurable condition that would eventually leave him totally blind. And that was hard enough, but things were about to get even harder. You see, at university, he had fallen in love, and they were planning to get married. But when he broke the news of his condition to his fiancée, she said to him well, she couldn't go through life with a blind husband. And she left him. Now, in that really tough time, wonderfully, his sister um, offered to care for him. 
And over time, with her, her help, an amazing uh, thing, he, he became a pastor. And in fact, he, he, he ended up uh, preaching to 1,500 people a week, even though he was blind. With his sister's help, he developed a remarkable ministry. But then when he turned 40, his sister fell in love and got engaged. And while he was, of course, happy for her, it was a really painful time. Not only did it bring back all those painful memories uh, from 20 years before of a failed engagement, but also he had to come to terms with the fact that from now on he was going to be without the one person who had always come through for him, the one person who'd always been there. And so the evening before her wedding, he was at absolute rock bottom. He was devastated. He described it as severe mental suffering, and he was wondering how he could possibly go on. But that same night, he wrote one of the most sublime hymns ever written, at least in my opinion. And here are two of its verses. O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain. That morn shall tearless be. So much of our ability to live the mercy-driven life depends on how we respond to seasons of pain and disappointment and waiting and wondering. Because those seasons present us with a crucial choice that we just can't avoid. And the choice is there in the words of that hymn. And it's this. Will we close our hearts to God or will we keep them open? Will we close our hearts to God or keep them open? In our pain, will we close our hearts? Because it's so easy to do. In those times, it's so easy to say to God, I've done enough loving. I've made my sacrifices. I've served this church and this community in so many ways and I'm tired. I'm tired of being zealous for you. Look at all I've done. And look at, where, look at where it leaves me. I'm done with being all in. From now on, I'm going to leave that to other people. I've had enough. And in the bitterness and the pain, we close our hearts. Maybe we keep going to church on Sunday. But it, it becomes a pattern rather than a priority. Because our hearts are somewhere else. And slowly and steadily, the fire dies. The spark goes. We find other things to give our best energies to. But anyone who knew us well would see that something was missing. Because when the, when the heart closes and the fire goes out, well, so does the joy. And so does that rich inner life. And so does that sense of purpose. And so does that fellowship with God. The knowledge of his presence that we always used to be most conscious of in the hardest times. But I can't go through that again. So we close our hearts. Is that the way we choose to go? The choice is always there. Or will we say with George Matheson, no. No, I can't do that. It's tempting, but I can't. I can't close my heart to this God. I haven't got a clue why this is happening or what good's going to come of it. But I can't close my heart to a saviour who loves me as much as Jesus loves me. I've got to keep going. I've got to keep trusting. He didn't give up on me. I can't give up on him. What is it that keeps you going 
in the tough times? What songs and scriptures and stories are God's means of grace to you? A few years back, I went through an excruciating time of waiting and wondering about the future. I, I don't yell at Kylie, um, but I do sometimes yell at God. And in fact, on one of, one of the occasions, I yelled at him so much that I lost my voice for 24 hours. I was just absolutely at the end of myself. But one of the choruses that helped me immensely in that time was this. Your love never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out on me. Your love never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out on me. Your love never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out on me. And I must have sung that chorus literally a thousand times. But in the end, it made a huge difference. Because it gave me something to sing. It led me in prayer. It helped me to hold on to hope. It was my song for the season. So I encourage you to make sure you know what yours are, because you're going to need them. And because I thought it might help some of you at least, uh, I've put together a Spotify playlist called SMBR When It's Tough. Um, might be a, a, a good source if you want to find a few new songs uh, that speak into those times of pain and suffering. But be patient in affliction. And then finally, be faithful in prayer. Be faithful rather than giving up. Keep on praying for God's highest and his best. For the world, for the wider church, for St. Mark's, for you, for the people in your life. Keep on praying for spiritual breakthrough. The temptation is always to lose heart and to give up. But the call is to persevere. I know God's teaching me uh, perseverance in praying for my family and friends who don't yet know him. It's been 16 years and I've barely seen any visible progress so far. But every time I want to give up praying, and I often do, something strange happens. Usually, in, in fact, in the next 24 hours after I'm thinking that. In that next 24 hours, I'll nearly always hear yet another testimony of someone praying for 30 or 40 or 50 years. And then the breakthrough came. And that's God reminding me, keep going, keep going, keep going. So let's be faithful in prayer. Let's use everything that's going to help us like the Kingdom Come initiative, like deeper this Tuesday. But let's be faithful in prayer. So there you are, 12 challenging and beautiful commands to people who are wanting to live the mercy-driven life. There's so much there to learn, certainly for me, and I expect for you as well. So let's meditate on these. Let's discuss them after the service. Let's discuss them in our home groups. Let's apply them wholeheartedly and creatively. Let's ask God for more of his spirit to help us really live this out. But above all, remember the why. Remember the why. Remember what needs to drive all of this. It's all in view of God's mercy, in view of the incredible, all-forgiving love of God in Jesus Christ. And this is why every Sunday, whatever season we're going through, we need to worship him with unfettered spiritual fervor. Because we're not just worshiping any God, we're worshiping Jesus. Jesus, who is the perfect manifestation of all of those things we've just been thinking about. Can I invite you to stand? And as we come back into a time of worship, I just want to remind you who the God is that we're worshiping. We worship Jesus. Jesus, who loved us as sincerely and deeply as it is possible to love. Jesus, who hated evil with a perfect hatred. 
opposing everything that steals and kills and destroys. Jesus who perfectly clung to everything that is good, salvaging the ruins of a fallen world, salvaging the ruins of a lost humanity. Jesus who welcomed the most difficult people as his brothers and sisters, loving us with a mind-blowing devotion and commitment. Jesus who, though he was God, honoured us above himself, though he was God, trading his glory for our disgrace. We worship Jesus who never wavered in zeal for God or spiritual fervour, despite the fiercest temptations to do so. Jesus who never stopped serving the Lord, even when it was inconvenient, even when it cost him absolutely everything. Jesus who for the joy before him endured the cross. Jesus who was patient through the greatest afflictions, who was faithful in prayer like no one ever was. Jesus who welcomed strangers who deserved to remain strangers forever. Jesus who meets our deepest needs and shares everything with us. We worship Jesus who's loved us with an awe-inspiring, everlasting, all-forgiving, death-defeating love. A love that never fails, a love that never gives up, a love that will never run out on you, a love that will never run out on me. That's the God we worship. Should we do that now?